This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and I've been filling in for my pastor, Pastor Ron Arbaugh, who is out of town uh, until Friday. So both he and Paula have arrived at their destination. They are uh, relaxing, spending time with each other, spending time with Jesus. Uh, They would appreciate your prayers for you that, that normally listen to the, the radio show, uh, he's the one that takes the calls and questions, and he's the one that comes up with the, 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 the wonderful answers. Uh, my job is to do my best to do the same thing that he does, so that means I will give you the phone number to call in and ask your questions. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585-877-630-5757. That's the toll-free number if you're out of the area. 877-630-5757. The email address to submit your questions is questions at calvarysa.com. You can use the app, the church app, to submit your questions. You can also call into the radio show uh, using the KSLR app, so that way you don't have to mess with your phone if you're in a car. Uh, So, like I said, it's Wednesday. That means it is an Old Testament Bible study tonight. Uh, I will be teaching, since Pastor Ron, like I said, is not here. Uh, Tonight, we're going to take a break from Genesis, and we will go into the third chapter of Lamentations. And the, the moment I sent that email to Pastor Ron to let him know what I was teaching, his response was, was pretty funny, actually. He said, uh, if you're going to teach Lamentations on a Wednesday night, then everyone's going to be excited for me to come back. <laughs> and if you know Lamentations and you know what it's about, it, it can be pretty tough. Um, but that's what we're going to do tonight. Lamentations chapter 3 is actually a very encouraging chapter. And so that's tonight, 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. You can watch online or you can attend in person as the Lord leads you. Last thing, uh, tomorrow is our date day edition. So that means, since Pastor Ron and Paula are not here, I will be doing the date day edition with my lovely wife, May, who will be with me here in the studio uh, that's tomorrow, 4 o'clock. So, ladies, if you want to call in or if you have questions, um, questions about what the Lord says about your, your marriage, your relationship, anything we can do to help you fall in love with Jesus, my wife would love to encourage you. Okay. 
let's go right to our questions. Our first one is from Nacho. Nacho, who is the other man who follows Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 40? And John chapter 1, verse 40 says, actually, you know what? I'm going to look at the, the context here because I think it, it's pretty self-explanatory. So John chapter 1, this is, this is um, at the beginning here in verse 40. Okay, it says this in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And this is talking about John the Baptist. And, and then the two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went saw where he was staying, and spent the day with him. It was about the 10th hour. And here's the verse that Nacho mentions. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So the, the answer to the question, John, even if it doesn't explicitly say who the uh, unnamed person is, we can look at Mark chapter 1, uh, where we see the two pairs of brothers. This is Simon and Andrew and James and John. Uh, they're all, all four of them are named. And, and we know that when Jesus called them, they called them together. It's likely that this person who's unnamed here is the actual author of this gospel. And that would be John. And we know this also about John. Uh, John, he likes to refer to himself in a couple of ways. Um, we know he likes to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Four times he, he names himself as that person in his gospel. But he also does this in, in the 20th chapter. Remember the story of, of Peter and John running to the empty tomb. And eh, John goes almost out of his way to make mention of the fact that both of them were running and the other disciple outran Peter. He's speaking about himself, and he wants people to know that he won, and he outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So it's likely, Nacho, that this uh, other man who followed Jesus in John chapter 1 was John, actually himself. I, I love that picture of uh, John chapter 20 when Peter and John are racing because uh, I, like many, I closely identify myself with Peter and, and in the way we think. You know, Peter was kind of a, a shoot first, ask questions later type of person. And, and, you know, in many Bible studies and many sermons, he catches a lot of flack for that. But the truth is, he's more like us than, than we care to admit. And Peter, though, I, I always picture myself in that uh, 20th chapter just bumbling and stumbling and running with all of his might to the empty tomb because he's the one that had the most to gain. I mean, everyone, uh, at least each one of the disciples there, they needed to know for themselves. But Peter, who had messed up so many times, 
was somebody who had to see with his own eyes that hope has come and that the tomb really is empty and that everything Jesus said is absolutely true. I just love that. So that's your answer, Nacho. I hope that helps. Let's go right to our phone lines. Uh, Ray from San Antonio, you're on the air. Well, thank you for taking my call, <laughs> Ken. <clears throat> I have a, a, a strange question, I guess, and uh, I guess it would be spurred by uh, my my looking at the Bible my grandmother gave my mom, her mom. Uh, shortly before I was born, <laughs> uh, wow. and uh, and it was dedicated to my mom and dad, and you know, in the in the forward kind of thing. Says, Please read it, and then she <laughs> makes a note of her favorite chapter was. Uh, Romans 12, and I wonder if you could tell me if you and May have your favorite uh, chapters, and I will listen on the air. Oh, Ray, that's great. You know what? We'll we'll actually talk about this tomorrow, but I can give you an answer. Uh, I know that for my wife, uh, there are certain passages that really... Uh, stay close to her heart because at the time uh, when she gave her life to Jesus, uh, she she heard the Lord speak to her heart so clearly, and uh, it's actually very similar to uh, what Paula refers to as her her life chapter. I think Mays and she'll correct me tomorrow. I think it's Isaiah fifty four and part of fifty five that really really touched her heart. Um, and there's a couple of other passages, but but that one sticks out when you ask the question. I know that she mentioned my wife may mentions that one a lot. For me, uh, I, there are a few. I don't really have life verses or life chapters. It, it it's kind of like um, you know asking me what my favorite song is. There's a couple that stick out, but it, it depends on what I'm going through and what the Lord is speaking to my heart. But. Like May, I have a few passages that come to mind when I think about November 30th, 1997. That was the day that I got saved, and there was so much going on in my life. Uh, a whole bunch of nothing, really. And uh, at, at the place where I reached rock bottom, uh, I thought that there's really no purpose to my life and no sense in, in living. Being all of 25 years old... I, I thought there I was there was no way my life was going to change. Uh, so Luke chapter 17 is what I remember from that night, the story about the ten lepers and and that was the passage that uh, was being taught when I went to church that night. Somebody brought me to church and Luke chapter 17, one thing that stuck out to me was the Samaritan, who of the ten that were healed, the one that returned, he was the one that was grateful. And I think at that point, God began to show me that gratitude 
was something that was always going to fill my heart, and there was something that would, I would never let go of because I, I deserve to be dead. But Jesus gave me life. And, and, and because I have flesh, in those days when I feel like and I uh, complain about my life should be better, I am reminded that I, I should be dead. But Jesus has given me a life, and I want to use a life that he's given me to, to get, honor him, to give him glory. It also reminds me of another passage, and actually another verse in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul the Apostle is speaking, and he, that, this resonates with my heart also, because he says that I have been crucified with Christ. I think about November 30th, and when I gave my life to the Lord, uh, that was me dying, and Jesus making me alive again. And, and, the part of Galatians 2.20 that really sticks to me today is, is when Paul says, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And the idea there is that it was something that happened you know, 22 years ago, but every day the gratitude continues. And the life that I now live by faith it, that means when, when, when my flesh wants to sin, when my opinion uh, is criticized, or when somebody hurts my feelings, or if somebody cuts me off in the freeway, whatever it is, uh, my flesh is just evil and wicked and wants to retaliate. But I remember that the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That instantly restores my gratitude and brings my mind to a place where I need to be. And I will add this, one last thing, Ray. Uh, there is another passage at, that really sticks to my heart. I use it when I share my testimony. That's Luke chapter 7. This is the unnamed woman. That's, her story begins in verse 36. And this was you know, the story, and I won't go over all the details, but that woman entered into Simon's house, and under great scrutiny, she was looked down upon, went straight to Jesus and wept at his feet. And the picture there is that she was a prostitute, someone who everyone looked down upon. But it was at that moment that she just humbled herself before the Lord, broken. She knew that she was a sinner. Nobody had to convince her. And with loving, tender eyes, and with a heart towards her, Jesus said to, to Simon as he was reading their minds that this woman loves much because she's been forgiven so much. And that's me. That's me. I, I think about what my life was like and even if it almost seems like this is uh, I'm a complete I am a completely different person and the life that I I live today is is like polar opposites in a bizarre world that was uh, a person that lived long ago the truth is if I just sit for, for a few seconds that pain comes flooding back pretty quickly I remember the faces of, of my family or people that knew me as they would look at me in disgust or pity and I would look upon myself that way and that's when Jesus says but I don't look at you that way 
I'm that woman from Luke chapter 7. All eyes on her in that room were eyes of condemnation and of shame, except for Jesus's. So, Ray, I, I hope that helps. Thanks for asking the question. I thought you were going to ask me a question about the Bible itself. I, 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 I mean, I'm sorry, that, that physical Bible that your mom had. Because I don't know, it's something that I've been looking at lately. I have a Bible that it's got a bunch of notes, and I, I want to move on and, and get another one. But I always seem to refer back to this one because I, I kind of know where everything is at, and it's tattered. And But I know I, I like to keep other ones around so that uh, I don't have to remember. It's in the top left corner of this page where this passage is. I want to challenge myself, and I thought for some reason that's what we are going to talk about. <laughs> Thanks for your call, Ray. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your heart. Okay. 210-340-9585. That's the number to call if you have questions. Um, 877-630-5757. That's the toll-free number to call if you're out of the area. And of course, there's questions at calvarysa.com. Uh, the next question, 17, verse 2, a promise to Christians. This is what Proverbs 17, 2 says. A prudent servant will rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the family. Uh, Kirby, the answer is no. This is not a promise to Christians. But there is great practical application here. So let's talk about the, the context of, of Proverbs 17 and what it actually means. We have to remember this. In the culture that this was written, it, it was normal or, or common for a servant who has proven to be trustworthy, uh, that the servant would inherit um, an estate uh, that included responsibility over a wayward child. And it makes sense. If the master has a, a, a worker or a servant that has proven themselves faithful time and time again, and they see a son of the family who is who has not proven themselves faithful, well then, in order to help the son, he would give the responsibility over to this trustworthy person. Now, the disgraceful son mentioned in Proverbs 17 is is one that would it would be someone who has brought shame to the family name. Remember, uh, the name of the family and the reputation of the family was very important, and so the the the, the proven servant. This is the prudent servant, but it's in the NIV, it's uh, labeled as somebody who is wise. And the, again, the idea is somebody who has proven themselves trustworthy. This person will rule or, or be the authority of, over the disgraceful son and will share in the inheritance as one family. It will, this person's responsibility is to train up the child and show the child the ways of God just as if, or, or with the same authority that the parent had. This, this is interesting, because 
the story behind it. Remember Solomon, who who wrote Proverbs as uh, the majority of Proverbs as a great way to raise our children. It's it's the best parent guide that the Bible offers. Again, we don't base doctrine off of the poetical books, but we sure can use these guidelines. And in this case, it would be the it would it would apply. I think of when Solomon would write this. If he would think about what would happen to his own legacy, what would happen to his own son. Remember when Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Um, rose to power and it was uh, the first time that the kingdom of Israel had another ruler after Solomon there was a, a huge divide and in fact the ten of the tribes uh, decided not to, they rebelled against Rehoboam because he was someone who wasn't proven responsible Jeroboam was one who served under Solomon, and he's the one that rose to responsibility. So the ten tribes, which later became the ten tribes of Israel, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, uh, they were led by Jeroboam, and he's the one that had that responsibility. Um, it, and this is just a picture of what will happen when someone proves themselves faithful. And in this case, Jeroboam, though not perfect, but he was somebody that, that uh, even at a young age, younger age, as a servant under Solomon's palace, was shown to be one that would, that would take responsibility over things and became a trustworthy servant. And, and this is amazing to me. It's because, uh, you know, the... For today, that even if we live in a different culture, uh, a lot of us find ourselves being responsible or guardians over other children that that we were were not the parent of, and th- that could be a challenge to the child that has a new authority, and also to the one that's inheriting this this uh, privilege of ruling over this new child and it's a challenge but what the lord says is we raise our children or those we're responsible to guide in the way of the lord using the word of god as a guide and all we can hope for and pray for is that at that age when they reach that age to when they have to make their own decision to rebel or to follow Jesus, uh, they're going to look at our example as the ones that have been over them. And they're going to say, uh, either I do want the same Jesus that I've seen in my home, or, or I don't. As parents, as guardians, as even grandparents who are sometimes raising uh, their, ch- their, their grandchildren as the guardian we have to be okay with that. We teach our children, we show our children who Jesus is. And if they decide at, at a later age that they do not want to follow the Lord, it will break our hearts. But we can rest in the fact that we did the best we could 
and that Jesus will continue to chase the child that we love. And they will use that which we, we train them in at a later time in life to reflect back upon. It happens all the time. So Kirby, that's the answer. No, it's not a promise to Christians, but it is definitely something that, that we can use in our practical application today. Uh, I would also add, we got a, about two minutes here, so I won't have time for another question until after the break. But I want to talk about this. And, and as it pertains to uh, raising difficult children, because that's the implication here. A prudent servant will rule over a disgraceful son. Oftentimes, uh, you know, it's, parents have a, a great time raising easy children who sit quietly in their high chair and, and never seem to cry. And then there's uh, another child that is colic or always crying or always complaining. And, uh, or maybe they get older and they're, they're just difficult to deal with. Uh, Jesus will always give us the grace we need when we need it, especially when it comes to raising our children. And whether they're yours biologically or they're yours as a responsibility given by Jesus, our job is to show them who Jesus is and entrust the results into Him. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are at the end of the first half of the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken, and we'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the Wednesday edition of the word to stand on for life. If you're just tuning in, my name is Pastor Ken Cruzado. And I'm filling in for Pastor Ron this week, at least up until Thursday tomorrow, because Pastor Ron and Paula are out of town, enjoying a few days together. Uh, he will be back here in the studio to take your calls on the Friday edition of the show. So what that means is that tomorrow's date, the edition, I get to spend with my lovely wife here, May, in the studio. So, ladies, you can call tomorrow if you want to ask her any questions or if we can help you with uh, questions about your marriage or relationship um, and what the Lord what the Bible says about that. That's for tomorrow. Tonight, uh, remember, it's the Wednesday uh, Old Testament Bible study night here at Calvary Chapel. And since Pastor Ron is not here, I will be teaching. We'll take a break from the book of Genesis, and I'll be in Lamentations chapter 3 tonight. Okay. I have a few questions actually submitted by the same person um, so what I'm going to do is just take them one at a time. This is from Alan. And he says, from, the, from your Monday Night Acts study, uh, is the imagery that you shared on trying to run away from our trials and rejection that Jesus is right behind 
chasing after us. Um, okay, sorry for the hiccup there. Uh, so, Alan, the question, yes, the, uh, this is in the context of Moses. Remember, we're in Acts chapter 7, and, and Stephen's discourse, a wonderful discourse, I think it's 56 or 56 verses of, of Stephen's discourse explaining to the Pharisees the, in, the entire, at least the, the main points of, of their own history. And Stephen would be a, a Grecian Jew. Uh, and so uh, the picture there is that this person, this disciple of Jesus who proved himself to be faithful by busting tables, serving, uh, was given a greater responsibility and a greater audience, and that would be the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And, and in chapter 7 of Acts, he goes through, starting with Abraham, he goes through all of the patriarchs, explaining to the forefathers that Jesus was the one that they all pointed to, and you guys missed him. So a couple of things about this. that When you... You reference the the running away from our trials. I, I believe you're talking about Moses. I'd mentioned in our last study in Acts chapter seven this section about Moses and the time that he went to Midian. Because remember, when he was confronted by his own people, Stephen goes uh, sort of out of his way to mention that Moses thought that his own people would recognize the calling that God has placed upon his life, and that's to lead his people. And remember when he went to try to resolve this issue between two uh, fighting Hebrews, his own people, they, they didn't want to listen to him. And, and as a result of that rejection, uh, he fleed and ran off to, to Midian. And uh, so there's two things about this. Um, was that the appropriate response? Probably not. Uh, but we know that Moses needed that time in the desert. He needed that time in Midian. Why? Because his heart needed to be prepared for the great calling that God had in store for him. So that imagery of, of, of Moses running away from that rejection, uh, you mentioned, Alan, is this a picture of Jesus... Uh, being right there behind us, chasing after us. Well, it is. And, and let me explain. You know, when, when we steer off course and we go in an opposite direction that Jesus intends for us, he won't go to us in the sense that he's going to be with us where we're in sin, distant from him. But what he will do is he'll chase us down, and that's through the Holy Spirit. We know from John chapter 16 that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And that's what he does. The Holy Spirit will go and, and, and chase after us, almost woo us back to Jesus, to bring us to this place of repentance. In the same way that Pastor Ron calls Jesus the hound of heaven, he just doesn't quit. In fact, I, I mentioned this tonight. Part of Lamentations chapter 3 uh, describes God's chesed love, his, his love, that his loyal love that chases us down even when we become wayward or get off course. And in the case of Moses, 
though he spent the 40 years being prepared in the palace and then the additional 40 years subsequently in the Midian desert, he needed that time. He needed that time uh, because God had to prepare him for the work. And then the second part of your question here is, is and would the Sanhedrin already know, uh, even though that Stephen was show, even would they already know what Stephen was showing them? Uh, yes, the answer is that they would know exactly what Stephen was saying, and that would make it even worse. And this is why, because. The Pharisees were a prideful people. The men who were highly educated, uh, and, and, and one who, men who held themselves above uh, the rest of the normal people because of their background, because of the way they dressed, even the way they prayed and the way they talked, they looked down on the normal Jewish people because they believed they were the ones chosen by God. And it's true they were the ones given the responsibility to lead the Jewish people to God, but they didn't do that. Instead, what they did was they taught the people to, to, to fear them and to follow religion and to do works instead of teaching them the heart of God. Well, now Stephen comes along. And remember, Stephen's purpose, we don't want to get so detailed into the, the sections of Stephen's discourse that we lose sight of the bigger picture here. The bigger picture is that Stephen was, was going through the history, the Old Testament history of the patriarchs, and reminding the Pharisees of what they already know to show them that Jesus all along was the one that they were talking about, whom they prophesied. But, but I would go a step further and even say this, that even if Stephen knew that what he was saying could get him in trouble, he didn't care. If he was going to die, which he did, but if he was going to die at the, the, at the feet of these religious leaders, he was going to spend every last moment and ev use every last breath to win these hardened hearts to the Jesus that he knew. I love that. I love that. So, so Stephen isn't recapping the entire history of the Old Testament or, or, or the patriarchs to show up over these Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, but he was doing it with a specific purpose of winning them, winning their hearts to Jesus. And the application there, I think, is fairly obvious. He, he didn't waste time getting offended when they would insult him. He didn't waste time trying to defend himself or his credentials. He was a Greek. But what he did was he used every moment to speak about Jesus. It, it reminds me of when Paul the Apostle would write to the Corinthians in his first letter at the very beginning, chapter 1 or maybe chapter 2, when he said, when I was among you, I resolved to know nothing. That's chapter 2. 
in the beginning. He says, I resolve to know nothing except for Christ crucified. That's it. That's it. And he's saying, I, I'm not here to talk about anything else. And I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm not trying to debate you. I'm trying to convince you with the help of the Holy Spirit that what you've been looking for all your life is found in Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Stephen was doing. Speaking to the Sanhedrin, his heart would go out to them. I love that. So yes, Alan, he knew exactly what he was talking about, but his heart was always to, to win the lost. Uh, oh, actually, Alan has a couple more questions here. I'll, I'll take one more from Alan, and then we will continue on. Let's see here. He says, Could you clarify your comments you made concerning Moses, that he was humble but bold? He was a humble but bold person. Um, then because he was bold, a lot of people came against him. Sure, absolutely. So, one of the things uh, about Moses that we remember is this. So he was somebody that was well-educated in Pharaoh's home. At the time, Egypt was the, the pinnacle of higher education. Greece had not yet come into power and not yet been known as uh, the place for university and the place of higher learning. But at the time, this was Egypt. And so in Pharaoh's home, where Moses was raised for 40 years, this is where he would get the best education with the best teachers. And one of the things we learned about Moses is that after he leaves the palace and uh, later on in his ministry, even having had the best education, when God said to him, after the burning bush, okay, I've got work for you. I, I, I'm calling you. My calling for you has not changed, but I've got work for you to do. I'm going to go back to Egypt. His concern was that he was uh, somebody who was not a good speaker, and so that's when he said, well, let's get Aaron's help. Let Aaron be my speaker. What we know about Moses is this. He was very well educated. Maybe he wasn't the best speaker, but he was a good speaker, he was somebody who was humble. Meek is the word that the Bible uses to describe him. But being humble or having humility doesn't mean you stay quiet. So when I mentioned about Moses that he was humble yet bold, he was bold in the sense that he would speak the truth uh, to the, the Israelite people even if they didn't want to hear it. In fact, remember when they were in the desert for 40 years in the book of Exodus when the people rebelled time and time again against Moses when he would speak to the people exactly what God told him to say. They didn't want to listen to him. His own siblings didn't want to listen to him. Miriam and Aaron didn't want to listen to Moses. There was a time when uh, they were thinking about, well, why should we listen to you? And, and this is when Moses was bold enough to speak the truth, yet still kept a humble heart. He wasn't perfect. Remember when he got angry at the rock? 
and he understood that there are consequences to his sin. But that's what it means to be humble, to, to know who you are and have a correct view of yourself before the Lord. And that means that sometimes having a humble heart before the Lord means you're going to speak out and you're going to do what you're not comfortable doing. Why? Because this is what Jesus says to do. And, and, and when you do that, uh, you're not going to make everybody happy. And that's exactly what happened to Moses. So, Alan, I, I hope that helps. This is uh, it's one of the neat things about Moses that it really intrigues me because we see uh, what God can do in, in the life of a man whom he prepares for years and years and years. And, and even after all that preparation, still doesn't do everything perfectly. But he was a friend of God. But he was someone that spoke with God like as a friend, face to face. I love that about Moses. Okay, let's go to our questions. We have Anonymous asking a question. I would like a step-by-step program to get close to Jesus daily. What do you advise? Anonymous, we don't have a step-by-step program, nor should you follow one. Because if you did, it, uh, it wouldn't help you. And the way you get close to Jesus, I think I talked about this yesterday for another, uh, another question that was submitted. But the only way you can get close to Jesus is if you get close to his word. And your heart becomes Jesus' heart. The things you store in your heart the things you treasure in your heart becomes the things that Jesus treasures. And the things that you store in your mind, the way you make your decisions, that's in the mind, is the same decisions that Jesus would make. And that's how you get closer to Him. So don't look for a step-by-step program. And you know what? If you went on the Internet and you looked for one, you would probably find one. Uh, and sadly, it, it won't help. Now, there are other things that may look like step-by-step programs, like a Bible reading plan. Um, Personally, I'm not a a huge fan of them. There are a couple that I think are useful for me personally. But as a whole, you know, a step-by-step program that will walk you through the Word, not with commentary, but just walk you through certain portions of the Word, that could help. But it's got to be the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And, and here's the, the practical part when, where the rubber really meets the road. You can read the Bible, Anonymous, all day long. But if you don't do what it says, there's not going to be any value at all to your life, nor to the lives of those around you. Oftentimes when I'm in counseling, I'm sitting with with believer or believers, if it's marital counseling, and uh, I'll say something from the scriptures that they already know, and they'll nod their head and say, yes, I know, I already know that verse, sometimes even finish the verse for me. But then I ask them, if you know what it says, why don't you do what it says? And then, then that's when the excuses come. And I understand that it's one thing to read what it says and to actually do it, uh, 
But that's why you need the Holy Spirit. This is why you need Jesus. You need to be closer to him than you are to anything else. Like one classic example I deal with in counseling all the time is when I'm sitting with a husband and a wife and they're just not getting along. The body language is, is, is obvious. They don't have to say anything. And I'll, I'll, I'll ask them, well, tell me about the time that you spend in your word. And when I start with the husband, Pastor Ron does the same thing. You know, he'll, he'll hand them a Bible and say, well, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. Well, let's talk about this. And right away you can tell that they, they rarely opened their Bible. And that's where the problem is. So if you're looking for a step-by-step program that'll fix your life or get you closer to Jesus, just read it. Just read the Bible. There's no program that will help you do that. Even if you sign up for... Uh, chunks of the Word of God to get sent to you every single day, like in a devotional, that's not enough. There's something about taking the time, setting aside the time to open your Bible and sit there and let Jesus talk to you. You don't need a program for that. So that's what I would advise Secondary to that, I would also say you need to find a church. I don't know if you have one already, but if you do, then get involved. Get involved. It doesn't matter if you don't get along with the people. It doesn't matter if they're not like you. It doesn't matter if you have different backgrounds or you come from different cultures. That's actually the beauty of it. So anonymous, I would say, Find a church if you don't have one, and if you do, then get involved. Even during this COVID time of limited interaction, there are ways to serve the body, to get involved. And that, you don't need a step-by-step program. You just do it. And what you'll find is that Jesus will use the hearts of other people in the body to to knit your heart with, and, and together you'll grow closer to the Lord. So I hope that helps you. Thanks for your question, Anonymous. Uh, Let's go on to Dave. Dave says, says, can you define what it means to trample on the grace of God? Yes, this is very simple. And so Dave, uh, trampling on the grace of God means to cheapen it. Now, we understand what the grace of God is, and if you don't, this is what it means. The grace of God is is his unmerited favor to the infinitely undeserving. I use Pastor Ron's definition because it's great. The grace of God is unmerited favor for the infinitely undeserving. Now, In practical terms, that means this. God gave me a way to where I was receiving something that I did not deserve. It wasn't something that I could earn. It was something that was given to me freely. And as I received that gift, 
He's made me into a brand new person. And that's only by His grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Now, to trample on the grace of God means you with your mouth profess that you are someone that believes in the grace of God, but then you go and cheapen it with your lifestyle. That means you have, at least you think you have, uh, an intellectual understanding. You may even be able to articulate what the grace of God is, but your life doesn't show it. It doesn't reflect it. And that means you're even more accountable because you know that Jesus has died for your sin. You know how much he loves you. And you say that you believe it. But at the same time, you demonstrate with your life that that grace that God spent, he emptied the vaults of heaven and sacrificed everything he had, including his own only begotten son. That grace that God spent for you, you trample it, you cheapen it by saying, it's not that valuable. I'm going to live my life the way I choose. Practically speaking, Dave, it means this. When I have a a person in my face or at my job or in my group, whatever, in in the classroom that, that, that... has it out for me, that goes out of his way or her way to to give me a hard time. Well, the grace of God will tell me that that person is hurting and that person is the object of God's affection. And Jesus will say, instead of getting mad at that person, instead of retaliating, instead of getting irritated by them, why don't you treat them the way I treated you? In the same way that I showed you unmerited favor, undeserving favor, why don't you go and show them the same? They definitely don't deserve it. But don't treat them the way they treat you. Instead, treat them the way I treat you. That's when you understand the grace of God. Do they deserve it? No, neither did I. And if I go and treat them the way my flesh wants to, that's when I trample on the grace of God. I'm effectively saying, Dave, that, Jesus, I know you died for them. I know you love them, but you know what? Right now, they really crossed the line. And so I believe in the grace of God, but I'm not going to show it to them. That's how you trample on the grace of God. Dave, I hope that helps. And I hope that's an encouragement because... Now, the truth is, we all have flesh. Whether you got saved yesterday or you got saved 20 years ago, we will have this ugly thing called flesh till the day that we go to be with Jesus. But dying to our flesh is the way we don't travel on the grace of God. Well, there's our music. That means this is the end of the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. Remember, tonight is Old Testament study in Lamentations chapter 3. See you tomorrow for the Daybreak Edition. God bless. With Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Well,